Hello. Are you cooking a lot for yourself these days? Uh, not really. That's one of the things I really want to do. I, I, I haven't gotten to a supermarket yet since I was a Trader Joe's about two weeks ago. I've got to try this week. So you, um, when you say you haven't been to a supermarket, you mean obviously Garden of Eden, and we'll get our Garden yeah, of Eden no, but a, later. Yeah, no, but like an actual, an actual supermarket. Where you, uh, so you can make your emporium. You can make your famous jambalaya. Yeah, jambalaya, or well, or chicken. I would love just pick up some chicken. Would be nice. See if I can actually find something. So are you uh, are like you ordering that. in? Uh, no, I I had stuff in the freezer. Um, you know, that, that sort of thing, but it's not what I would call cooking necessarily more heating up or, you know, that kind of thing. Would you say you're against, uh, taking out at this point? You're, you're not, you're, you're playing it safe on that, in that regard. Well, play, well, play it safe. Uh, You know, I'm trying to be careful with money. Um, there's also, it's weird. I think the last couple of days there's been a noticeable change just, in the in the way the city is is working, it looked like the other day when I went to Garden of Eden, I saw most people with masks. Okay. Um, it's like, for instance, today was a beautiful day, and even just a couple of weeks ago, I would have taken the opportunity to go for a long walk, and I hesitated. Mm-hmm. You know, the the idea of uh, maybe that's not the best idea. It's definitely more scary out there in that sense. Yeah, you know, so um, I didn't go for a long walk. You know, I just kind of uh, still sat outside on the balcony here. So st- st- the the shelves still fully stocked, or I thought there was a little. I was there on Garden of Eden on Sunday, mm-hmm. and I thought they were a little sparser than they had been. First of all, the prepared foods they normal they're gone for the duration. Yeah. Oh, they are in okay. the back there. Yeah, they're those steam tables they had yeah, in the back. Yeah, right. that that's gone. And even they do have like remember they had the uh, prepared things in the container mm-hmm. near where yeah. the cash registers were. Mm-hmm. They have more of that now, but sort of uh, not the best choice. The, the deli counter is still open, so. Huh. It's funny because the, the you sort of there's all of these arcs that happen, right? Like things sort of happen in waves and they don't necessarily coincide with each other, it seems like. Like yeah. now you are hearing some talk about the sort of that, that New York is plateauing, you know, things are gonna start getting better. Mm-hmm. And but then like when when it was really, really bad, if we talked like a week ago, everything seemed normal to you. But now it's plateauing. And but things seem feel worse somehow. Is yeah, well, but, you know, the word is out. Like you know, we keep hearing this is going to be the worst week ever. The last few days, the number of hospitalizations have really skyrocketed. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I think, I mean, yeah, it was, it was normal. The last few weeks, I mean, you kind of get used to this, obviously, after a while. Yeah. But. The, the word was, you know, this is going to be really bad this coming week. Mm-hmm. Maybe I'm reacting to that. I don't know. But uh, no blood yeah. pressure update. You, no, you uh, no, no, no. But uh, I wouldn't be surprised if it inched up a little bit. Yeah, but I'm, I'm sure I'm fine. Uh, my dad's at 136 over 67. Oh, 
So yeah, that, a little high on the t- than, Yeah, I don't know what I really have no idea what it means. Yeah. yeah. Are you ready to get to 120 over 80? Uh, that's why we're here. Let's do it. I guess that love is like a Christmas card. You decorate a tree. You throw it in the yard It decays and dies Then the snowmen melt Well I once knew love I knew how love felt Yeah I knew love Love knew me And when I walked Love walked with me And I got no hate And I got no pride Well, I got so much love that I cannot hide Yeah, I got so much love that I cannot hide So we want to get you to one, if you don't know what one, the reference is yet, 120 over 80 is a reference to your blood pressure None of this that we're going through right now is uh, conducive to healthy blood pressure. Uh, the stock market, I don't even, I, you know what, I'm not even paying attention anymore. I stopped checking that, so I assume it's still not very good. Um, Actually, t- t- today it was, it, ticked it had up a big a up bit. today. No, it's not a, a tick up. I think it was a big up today. Okay. From what I hear. Okay. All right. That's good. Um, but, uh, but anyway, things are just a blip, I'm sure. Generally oh. not great which is not good for your blood pressure. So we're here to talk about the things that bring your blood pressure down, get you to your happy place, or at least so far that get us to our happy place. We have yet to receive a single email. Uh, our, our, um, I'm, I'm closely tracking uh, through using high-tech analytics our uh, listenership. Uh, we, are, we have plateaued about six to nine listeners. So... We're looking to grow that, and we want whoever those six to nine people are. We want them to be. This is an interactive show, so get on your email machine and email us. One twenty over eighty, the number one twenty one two zero over eighty o v e r e i g h t y at gmail dot com, and email us whatever it is that brings your blood pressure down. Your collection of Hummel figurines, uh, ironing, a certain TV show. We're 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 media people sports media people so for us it's a lot of movies and sporting events and televisions and i mean honestly i mean all any all any of these sporting i'm sure you're seeing this at home all any of these sports networks are doing now is replaying things people are even i even see people live tweeting old games as if they're happening live uh, in place of the things that would normally, we'd be about a week into the baseball season right now. We're going to talk baseball today to give you a baseball fix. Uh, but send us in uh, and give us your idea of um, of what brings your blood pressure down. Maybe we want to talk to you about it, or maybe we'll talk about it ourselves. We'll just steal it. Uh, the other guy on the other end of the line is my friend Doug. He lives in uh, in New York City in Manhattan on 16th Street. Uh, so every week he gives us his Garden of Eden update. This is the first time we're feeling a little unsure about our garden of Eden. it's not thunderdome level red but 
no, 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 no. But it just it seemed like it was a, a little sparser, a little less than in previous days. But maybe you know it was Sunday. Maybe if I went there today, maybe they had a delivery. You know, it it it, right. it could be that. Could so. be. well. Hopefully, we'll continue to get updates on that and. And hopefully that'll. Although I did run into the owner there on Sunday, and I did did. thank him for being there, and he was very appreciative. What's the owner's name? I that I don't know. Oh, you don't know? No, no. You just I just know him by sight. He recognizes me, but uh, so yes, he certainly. So, Mister Mister Eden, maybe I don't know. (laughs) Let's call Barbara Eden. Does Barbara Eden own Garden of Eden? We we could only hope. (laughs) We could. Uh, today we're going to be talking, we're going a little bit off of our normal thing that we've been doing so far. There's no sporting event, although we are going to be talking sports. Uh, first up, we're going to talk about one of my favorite books of all time, The Iowa Baseball Confederacy by uh, W.P. Kinsella. And Doug uh, chose uh, Martin Scorsese's uh, uh, documentary, The Last Waltz. Uh, Doug, formerly of Classic Sports, where he was a programming guru and then worked at College Sports Television. That's where we met. Uh, also a former working actor. And I, I have to tell you, I have managed to procure uh, audio and visual uh, a couple year, maybe a year ago. You came to me with your reel, your acting reel. But, uh, yeah, right. Yeah. yeah, because you wanted it. To, it was on, I don't know, DC. VHS or beta or something like that. And you well, I had it converted. It is digitized. now digital. Yeah. yeah. So me and uh, myself and Brian Davis, who uh, I've been in contact with uh, in the last couple of days, uh, digitized that for you. And he still had the link. So I, oh, I, did. I downloaded that and we're going to, we're going to mix it into the podcast here. Uh, but the one I want to talk about. So we talked last week briefly about family ties, your, your uh, appearance on family ties. Um, a very popular show in the 1980s with Michael J. Fox, uh, Michael Gross, Meredith Baxter Burney, Justine Bateman, Tina Yothers. Uh, but where you really, most of your work was commercial work, commercial, uh, n- national commercial work. Yeah, and, that's what paid the bills. Right. Yes. And one of the commercials on this reel, uh, actually, it's not the one that, the, of the, all of them, it's not the one that people would know the best. The people, the one people would know the best, and we could talk about this another time, are the time to make the donuts commercials, which are very famous with the guy, the little guy with the pudgy guy with the mustache. You know, time to make the donuts, time to make the donuts. You were, Wh- whose name, whose name was Michael Vale. Michael Vale. You were in one, a couple of those commercials. You were, you know, if you remember those commercials, they were sort of sped up many times. So actually seeing you is not that easy because you're moving very quickly. Uh, but you were in and you told us a little bit about that a few episodes ago, but we'll talk more in depth about it later. But I want to talk about the one you did for uh, FedEx for something called Zap Mail, which was some sort of um, expedited mail service through Federal Express. OK, Federal, you're sure you can get a copy of that report from L.A. to here in just two hours? Good. Okay, gentlemen, here's Femur with a whammo report. Femur? Yes, well, uh, I'm glad you mentioned that, Mr. Dickler, because I'm reminded of an incident in Cincinnati. Uh, I was at the airport, I believe, when I I found I was being paged on the white courtesy telephone. (laughs) And that reminds me of yet another incident in uh, Tucson. Uh, You remember that, Jim, don't you? Uh, How the wife and kids. Uh, And then that time in Sacramento when... uh, 
I don't need car wash. The side window is open. And... But that's the same thing. And then there was that time in Waco. Which brings me, gentlemen, to the Whammo Report. Federal Express introduces Zap Mail. It's absolutely, positively incredible. It was, uh, as you know, because I'm old enough to remember this period of times. I don't know what what year was that commercial. Do you have any? That was 1985. 85. So that's yeah. I was 11 years old, um, and it's a type of commercial that was very popular at that time. And I'm having I'm having trouble verbalizing, and maybe you can help me with this. The look and feel of those types of commercials it was oftentimes it took, they took place in offices. It, they were sort of manic, almost like they they the, very stylized. Yes, yeah. the, the 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 dialogue moved very quickly, and and there was this sort of strange, almost oppressive. Like I don't know. Can you do you, you know what I'm talking about though? Right. In this particular one, the yeah. FedEx one. You play a guy who has to give a report, and the something report, I forget what it was called. The, the whammo. The whammo report. <laughs> and, <laughs> and it's late, or you don't have it, and it's supposed to be coming. I, I don't have, I don't have, I am not prepared. I right. do not have the whammo report, so you, because at the beginning of the commercial, I find out that it, it, it's stuck somewhere out there, right. and you got to get it to me fast. But I do not have the report, and I have to present it at right. this meeting. And you, so the whole commercial is you killing time by telling yes. stories about things that have happened, um, going off on complete tangents. Yeah, it was that time know, in Albuquerque, winging it as best I can. Yeah, that Albuquerque airport where I did, you know, and then you're eating a Danish and. <clears throat> what do you know? What I'm talking about with that type of commercial, like. That they all sort of they looked very similar at that time. Well, there was it was a it was FedEx kind of popularized this whole thing. The idea of, of there was a it was a very different style for commercials at the mm-hmm. time, yeah. and you know the, the, there was you were looking for like a deadpan reaction or a big reaction. Uh, yeah. Everyone you know, was the, sort uh, of if you remember the jog. takes. Yeah, yes, yeah. It, it was it was supposed to be a heightened weird sense of reality. That right. they were going for, and there were um, certain directors who specialized in this. Well, yeah, there, there was the, the first FedEx uh, director. What was his name? Joe something or other. My director on the commercials I did was Pat Kelly, who was like the art director, and he started taking over the direction of the FedEx commercials. So he 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 booked me in this one. He liked me and he used me in a few other uh, FedEx spots. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the weird thing about this was I, you know, I had done maybe one commercial before this. I go in there. Now I knew I was quote the lead in this commercial. Right. So I get to this studio to, and actually, oddly enough, it was over at Chelsea piers hmm. before anything else was there in the it actual like, piers in the piers. Yeah, yeah. Like where we had our studio at classic sports in, 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 in one of those like hangar buildings mm. mm-hmm. so nothing was there at the time it was a complete mm. uh you know deserted part of town and i walk in there they get me into wardrobe and i basically ask to see the script mm-hmm. there is no script they show me a storyboard 
of you know what they wanted the shots to look like, but they said, "Look, we're going to sort of just try it. You you, you know you just come up with stuff. You know, mm-hmm. in this one, you you got to start delaying time. Um, so start talking to the guys, or just here. This is the storyboard. So give it a shot. See what you come up with. Right. So the whole commercial, I'm ad libbing the whole time. Wow. Okay. C- completely. And at the time. They were shooting a 30-second, a 60-second, and they even cut a 90-second version. So all day long, I'm just making this up as I go along. Mm -hmm. And I keep thinking, you're going to stop me. This is crazy. This is not not working. But they just, no, keep going. And they were getting a lot of laughter on the set, so I just kept going. Like, for instance, that you mentioned the Danish. I do remember that where I, I'm talking to the guys at the meeting and I start eating this Danish and I just take big bites mm-hmm. and I can't talk because I don't want to be rude. So you watch me eating this Danish. <laughs> I had to eat about 49 Danishes. How were they? Were they good, was it good Danish? They or? were actually very good Danish, but finally they had to you know, produce a big garbage can for a spit bucket. <laughs> you know, you just cannot, you can't go that long. But, yeah. the, but, all day, and it was a long shoot, but the whole thing was improvised, and I couldn't believe it. Hmm. And they seemed happy with it, and the kicker to the thing was, a few weeks later, I'm watching TV in prime time, and all of a sudden, there it is. There's wow. my commercial. Wow. Like, holy shit. Oh, yeah. my God. And I start you know, getting phone calls from people. They, it, it, was, it ran in prime time for about five, six weeks. All right. You know, like this is fantastic. Without going but into it, specifics, and I I'm sure this is a total the, the market is totally different now than it was then. Like how big a deal was that for you? Oh, this was this was my first paying job really in show business. And it paid I'd done well. Some plays before that, you know, some showcases, yeah. but well, I didn't it, there was a session fee but the, the whole concept of re- residuals was something I, I heard about, but I didn't know how it worked. Yeah. Then a few weeks into it, you start getting checks in the mail. Yeah. It's like, oh, my God. Yeah. Oh, my God. So the, up, the amount you but, made right at the front was not very much, but then you get No, no, but you, that's where you make your money. Right. In, in, and if it's shown in prime time, you get a much higher rate. You can't get a better rate than that. Right. So I'm like... You know, automatically, my, my I'm I'm doing an abacus in my head. Well, wait a minute. If I made this in one week, and then 52 weeks, oh my God, this is and it was that kind of a thing. But you know what the kicker to this thing was? The, the you commercial used it all to pay off your ex-wife's credit card. No, no. Well, I did, <laughs> but the problem with the the thing we were actually advertising, mm-hmm. the the Whammo report, was supposedly delivered to me within two hours. They had, the FedEx was p- pitching this thing where they could get an original document to you anywhere in the country in two hours. That's not possible. Which is not possible, right. <laughs> I mean, you know, I, I, I thought, you know, you, you know, the Wright brothers, Lindbergh, you know, you, yeah. you can't fly from California to, I didn't know how it worked, but that's what they were advertising. I swear to God, this is true. Within a month of my commercial being on air, the fax machine was invented. Oh my God. 
Uh, now, I don't know. Actually, yeah, people, they still have faxes. Uh, so for all you kids yes, out there, you, the thing, you know what right. that is, right? It's the, it's the thing that your health insurance company makes you use. That, that's right. basically the only time you ever use fax machines. And nobody knows, is, nobody in the office has any idea whether the paper goes, which whether which, which way, way you're goes, supposed to put right. the paper in, whether you're supposed to dial nine first or not dial nine, and it takes you like 45 minutes to do it. Right, but the point of it was within seconds, right. the document appears in, in Manitoba right. the, that you have just faxed to that office. Right. So unless you needed the original, right. the whole exactly. FedEx thing was just dead, and all of a sudden my commercial was pulled. Yeah. It, it was obsolete overnight. Well, you got, at least oh, you got it in under the wire and got something. I, I did, yeah. it, it, but but it was amazing for several a couple of months. I, I kept getting these checks, mm. and my eyes would, you know, like John Candy would bulge. <laughs> you know, that kind of like, oh. And I, it, it was a real eye-opener in that sense. So that was my first real paying job in show right. business. Okay. So the, the, the Dunkin' Donuts stuff came later. That that was that was later, but yeah. I did some other FedEx commercials after that, and it was just uh, the fact there was one a reunion spot where <laughs> all the people who did FedEx commercials we it was shot in Newburgh, New York, and it was this big party scene. Mm-hmm. So like, remember the fast talking guy? Oh, the micro machines guy. The, the John Machida. Yeah. The very fast talker. Yes. Yes. Uh, um, he was there. He. Uh, he was there. Actually, I we had to stay overnight. I roomed with him in the motel. He was my roommate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> He's a great guy. In a, He's a, in great a motel? Guy. And, 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 you stayed overnight what? in a motel with the Micro Machines guy? Yes. Yes, it was It was a two-day shoot. What yeah. else did he do? He did my, I, The one I remember is Micro Machines were these little, like, matchbox cars, and he would just talk really fast. The Micro Machine Man here presenting the genuine original, colossally collectible, most midget miniature replicas of the real things... Micro machines. Dramatically detailed, stupendously styled, smaller than enough, this one or this one. And now with a totally terrific town, the new Micro Machine Super City Toolbox playset. Closed, it's a mild matter toolbox. Open, it's a Micro Machine USA. Cruise your mini Micro Machine vehicles, planes, and boats to the police station, the marina, the mini motorcycle repair shop, the gas station, the construction office, work, the real working drawbridge, highway, passion to wrap and garage. John Machine, he's doing this very, I'm sure he's on YouTube. Look it up, you'll see. I mean, he was an amazing, you know, and he could enunciate brilliantly very fast. John Mashita. Yeah. John Mashita Jr. He was like the big the big star He's of the FedEx still alive. of those years. Yeah. Sixty five. Hmm. Yeah. Uh yeah, well we could talk about that. Well let we'll dive into that later a uh okay. at another time. Uh but first first up um is my choice for this week. Uh from the man who brought you Field of Dreams, it's the Iowa Baseball Confederacy. The one constant through all the years, Ray, has been baseball. America has ruled by like an army of steamrollers. It's been erased like a blackboard, rebuilt and erased again. But baseball has marked the time. This field, this game, is a part of our past, Ray. It reminds us of all that once was good. It could be again. Okay, I want everyone's gonna have to bear with me because I'm gonna actually do a little reading. Uh, this is a little well, I reading wish you series. Would, I have to preface it. 
I did not read this book. I had okay. read Kinsella's Shoeless Joe, right? which Field of Dreams was based on yes. before the movie had come out. I remember loving that book. Yes. So, so uh, the, yeah, the Iowa baseball. I wanted to read his other stuff, but never got to it. The Iowa baseball confederacy is the, as Doug alluded to, the lesser known work of the man who wrote the book Shoeless Joe, which was later adapted to the big screen uh, as Field of Dreams, starring Mr. Kevin Costner, Mr. James Earl Jones, Miss Amy Madigan, Mr. Ray Liotta, Mr. Burt Lancaster. Um, and the Iowa baseball confederacy came after Shoeless Joe, but not not at. I don't know where it falls in line with the movie. I think it probably came out before the movie. Um, it is considerably stranger, and I could try to explain it, but instead I'm going to read, because the, the very opening of the book lays out quite nicely what it's about. So I'm just going to read that. It's, it's not that much. It's like a, a page, uh, so that you have a good idea. <clears throat> my name is Gideon Clark, and like my father before me, I have on more than one occasion been physically ejected from the corporate offices of the Chicago Cubs Baseball Club, which are located at Wrigley Field, 1060 West Addison in Chicago. My father's unfortunate dealings with the Chicago Cubs began with his making polite requests for information concerning the 1908 baseball season, player records, box scores, nothing out of the ordinary. At first, the Cubs public relations people were most cooperative. I have their letters. However, the information they provided was not what my father wanted to hear. His letters became more pointed, critical, accusatory, downright insulting to the point of incoherence. The final letter from the Chicago Cubs baseball club, their stationery has a small picture of Wrigley Field at the top, is dated October 7, 1945, and states clearly, we consider the matter closed and would appreciate it if you did not contact us again. After that letter, my father began to make personal visits to the Cubs' corporate offices. My father's quest began in 1943. I was born in 1945 and grew up in a home where the atmosphere was one of vague unease. I sensed my father was a troubled man. The general anxiety and discomfort that permeated the air also affected my mother and my sister, Enola Gay. My father's problem was this. He was in possession of information concerning the Chicago Cubs, our hometown of Onamada, Iowa, and a baseball league known as the Iowa Baseball Confederacy. Information that he knew to be true and accurate, but that no one else in the world would acknowledge. He knew history books were untrue, that baseball records were falsified, that people of otherwise unblemished character told him bold-faced lies when he inquired about their knowledge of and involvement with the Iowa Baseball Confederacy. So the book is about this guy, Gideon, who who is for whatever reason um knows beyond a shadow of a doubt as his father did before him that there was a league called the Iowa Baseball Confederacy and that in 1908 the Chicago Cubs who were at the time uh world champions for the last time until 2016 uh, traveled to this his town Onamata and played a game against a Iowa baseball confederacy uh, all-star team. And uh, in the end, it, it goes through, his, talks about his father, who like tries to get a PhD at the University of Iowa and write a dissertation about it, and they won't accept it because it's just, to them, it's not true, and he insists it's true. And then his father eventually dies. Uh, they're at a Brewers game, 
and uh, a foul ball comes into the stands and uh, he basically he sort of commits suicide. He, he leans into the ball and it hits him in the temple and kills him. And at the moment of impact, Gideon suddenly is in possession of the same information that his father was in possession of and spends the rest of the book um, attempting to prove or uh, the rest of the book is about him. Um, well, we'll get to that. Anyway. Okay, no, I, I have a lot of questions here. Yeah. So, um, I mean, it's, it's, so it's, it's a, the way I would describe it, I mean, it's magical realist. So if you're familiar with somebody like Gabriel Garcia Marquez, who wrote uh, Love in the Time of Cholera and 100 Years of Solitude, it's that kind, that style of writing. Um, and the first question we always ask is why, why I chose the Iowa Baseball Confederacy. I mean, Casella, who is Canadian, uh, he died about a year ago. Uh, he was a supremely gifted writer. And I love to write and consider myself to be, uh, quote, unquote, a writer. I mean, I, I've been published a few times, not many, but I, I enjoy it and try to, I enjoy working on it as a craft. Um, but he's the, when I read Kinsella, you know, I think there are two kinds of writing as a, as a writer that when you read a book, one is a kind of writing that you identify with as similar to your voice and that you can take something from and use in your own work. And then there's things you read where you just say to yourself, I can't do this. And that's what Kinsella's writing is to me. Yeah. It's, he's just so gifted and paints such a vivid picture. I certainly um, came away from Shoeless Joe feeling that way. Yeah. That he was a unique voice. Very unique. Yeah. And he wrote, um, yeah. uh, he, his two big topics were baseball and Native Americans. He was from, um, I'm not sure what town, but he was from like the prairies of Canada, one of those Manitoba or Saskatchewan, one of those provinces. Um, and Native Americans in baseball, he often mixed the two as he does in this book. Um, and it, it just has... Every you know, it's 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 a ma it's so does, a book does about Gideon magic. Get to relive. Well, we'll the, get the game between the. I mean, we'll get to that. Some, okay. So the Sorry. the book is about magic, basically, and we could all use a little more magic in our lives right now. Uh, there's a 12 foot tall Native American. There's time travel. There's a 2,000 inning baseball game. There's the great Chicago Cubs team of the early 20th century with you know, Frank Chance and Tinkers to Evers to Chance and all of those players. There's um, there's a flood. There's a sort of religious cult that's involved in the whole thing. There's love stories. He's he's very much a mirror of his father who is in love with this woman who could sort of could not be tamed. There's and he falls in love with a similar woman who just tortures him, basically. Uh, there's a sister he has named who was referenced in the opening of the book called Enola Gay, who's sort of a Patty Hearst type figure. She's wanted by the FBI and he doesn't know where she is. She bombed something or robbed a bank or something like that. Um, uh, but he's just a, a wonderful writer. And Doug, you're saying you, you, you read Shoeless Joe, which is a very similar style, though. I think not as weird as this book, not as sort of chock full of that no, stuff no, as this, this book. This takes it up a notch. Sounds yeah. like yeah. yeah, and which and that was of um, course was turned into to Field of Dreams, which yes is one of the great sports movies of all time. Now, could I add a couple of things you've mentioned, which I find very interesting? The, mm -hmm. the like the sister, for instance, Enola Gay. Yeah. Now, 
you know where I know that name from. Well, she, it's, it's the plane that coincidence. It's the yeah the the bomber the that dropped the, the plane uh, at Hiroshima Hiroshima bomb, and it was the name of the pilot's wife. Oh, was it? Named Enola Gay. Yeah, uh, I think I did know so, that. Yeah, but I'm just you know it's, it's interesting that Kinsella it's chose that name for the sister. Everything is just quirky. Everything is weird yeah. and quirky and not quite right. Um, and it's because I don't just... think that's a. I mean, that's not a. I don't think there were other Enola Gays out there. Like I never met someone named Enola Gay Rosenzweig, for instance. <laughs> I you know, yeah. so I, I, they, 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 it's it's just it's an odd choice, an interesting choice. Yeah, I think it's um, just meant to to be another odd thing. I, I don't know. He's he's. Okay. I mean, there's so much stuff going on in this book um, that it's hard to keep. It's hard. It's impossible to sum it up. Basically, um, well, the other thing before the other thing that, that struck me when you when you read the first page is that it's this is a book about the 1908 Cubs, the last World Championship mm-hmm. before the one we witnessed a few years ago. But the fact that his father finally was getting answers and and, and refusals to help him out in 1945 in October. Well, they would have been in the, the world their last time, the time they were in the World, world series. series. Yeah, I don't think they mention that much. I don't know why he chose that time, except that it maybe worked for the timing of it, uh, for the age of the character that he wanted to be portraying. Um, but uh, there's many great characters in the book. When we do a movie, with the, one of the questions we ask is we, the delightful, who who's the sort of character we like the most? Um, there's a couple, but... Um, there's a character named Stan, who is Gideon's best friend, and he's a career minor league baseball player who, despite his advancing age, sort of still dreams of making the major leagues, and he's he's sort of stuck in single A, and he's got some injuries. I mean, he's never going to make it, but he, he's not quite, he's sort of lovably thick, and not, he's never... Um, gonna, he's never going to make it, and you know he's never going to make it, and this goes with Kinsella's I mean, in, in Field of Dreams and in Shoeless Joe, there's the famous Moonlight Graham who plays a single game uh, or a single, he, he plays a single defensive half of an inning and never gets up to bat. Um, so that's sort of a theme in, in Kinsella's work is these sort of people who who just miss and and but dreaming of this life and just sort of just miss it. Um, and he's a wonderful character. Um, um. But... Now, what, 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 what I find interesting is Field of Dreams was such a huge hit. Mm. And it, was a, it was a big deal movie. I'm, I'm a little surprised that this book, for instance, you know, didn't make it. Yeah. I, I bet. You, to, to, to the big screen. Do you think it could have been adapted? Oof, man. I mean. Or, and actually today might be, look, we need content so much between, you know, Amazon, Netflix, whatever. Content is incredibly the king. Yeah. These days. I mean, I'm sure somebody being adapted. I'm sure today. somebody owns it. I mean, I'm sure somebody owns the rights to it and has has thought about it. To me, it's much just a much more complicated proposition than than Shoeless Joe because it's there's just way more going on, and it requires. Well, I mean, they both require suspensions of disbelief that are obviously. you know obviously. But it sounds like if not a movie, certainly maybe a miniseries. I would love if they did that. If somebody did it, it's the kind of thing you could really do wrong, I think, not do well. Um, It could be cheesy. 
Uh, it sort of works in reverse of the way um, Shoeless Joe works. It's because it, one of the things I love, I've always been fascinated by the idea of time travel. And that's what happens in this book. And actually for the making the scene segment, I'm going to read another passage from the book. And this is the passage where the first half of the book is Gideon sort of setting it up, setting up Gideon's life, his love affair with this crazy woman who leaves him all the time and, you know, is very much like his own mother and his relationship to a um, with Stan and his relationship with uh, a family that lives nearby. Um an older couple and their young, uh, not young daughter, a sort of middle-aged daughter who has Down syndrome. Uh, and she seems to have some, she, she doesn't know about the Iowa baseball confederacy, but she, there are other things that Gideon sees like magical things that happen to him that nobody else sees, but she sees them. And his, her father is uh, a close friend uh, father and mother are close friends of Gideon and about halfway through the book you learn that um that John he's the uh he's the the husband uh has cancer and he decides since he's dying that he's going to reveal after all these years to Gideon after all these years of knowing Gideon and knowing his father that in fact he does remember the Iowa baseball confederacy and in fact he played in the game that they are obsessed with and he's kept it from them all these years because he wasn't sure that it would help basically you know he could tell them but it would just make them crazier right because nobody else is going to remember and right. okay. so he decides not to tell him but now that he's dying he decides he's going to uh share this bit of information and he takes um he takes gideon to the place in town where the the game took place and he tells them to um, they have a conversation about how there are rifts in time and, you know, and all these things. And, and you, sometimes you can slip through them. And he says, come back here tomorrow evening with with Stan and uh, and uh, we'll see what happens, because tomorrow is the 70th anniversary of the start of the of the game. So they return uh the next night, and this is just the part I'm going to read here, is just the end of a sort of the first half of the book. We hike past the edge of town. The air along the riverbank has a nightmare, nighttime chill to it, but the temperature rises as we scramble up the briar-choked hill to the plateau where the baseball field used to be. John Barron, that's the guy with cancer, who's a friend of Gideon's, is already there when we arrive. He is standing quietly amid the brambles and scrub growth. I see you brought a, brought a friend, he says. His shoulders are hunched, and he is wearing a black and red checkered Mackinac. I told you I would. You game, he asks Stan. I'm with Gideon and whatever he's up to. In the distance are the lights of the town. On the horizon, the pinprick windows of farmhouses. Oh, and you should have seen this field back when I was a boy. A fellow named Frank Hall was groundskeeper. He lived in a shack down on the riverbank. This field was like carpet. Frank rigged up a pump, and he piped water up from the river in wooden pipes. He stops and stares up at the moon, which has one corner sliced off like a bite trimmed off an apple with a knife. Feel the softness, says John Barron. It all feels right to me. What do you think will happen, I ask. What are you talking about, asks, says Stan. There are cracks in time, says John. Just stand and absorb the silence, the softness, the history. If it works, it will be smooth as butter. He takes a step back, 
then another. The brambles snatch at his cuffs for the first time, then grow silent. He takes another step, then another. He becomes only a shadow, then only an outline, in the delicate darkness, then only a voice. Absorb, absorb. Stan and I remain still as scenery. Stan sighs. I feel the tiniest of tingling sensations, as if an insect brushed against my arm. As we wait, the scent in the air seems to change subtly. The air is pungent with water. The delight of fresh-cut grass reaches my nostrils. The lightning is different, too. The sky is exactly the same, but the town is different. The buildings are closer than I remember, and there is less light. The farmhouse lights are gone. I look all around, but there is only one faint orange speck in the distance. What's happened, says Stan. I breathe deeply. We've slipped through one of those cracks in time, I say, my voice louder than I intended. I can hear water sprinkling softly in the darkness. Who's that out there? A male voice hollers. Get off my outfield before I get my gun. And that's the end of the first half of the book. And they've gone back in time to 1908. And they it's get to like watch. It's Iowa version of Brigadoon, you know? Oh, yes, which I haven't had a chance to watch yet, but we were talking about that the other day. The rest of the book is them witnessing this happen, basically, and there's just all these crazy characters, and there's a flood, and the game lasts for 70 days, and there's 2,000 innings, and um, it's it's a just a wonderful, wonderful book, and I highly recommend it. Um, if you like Looking this... Forward to it. Yeah, you should check it out. It's available yeah, uh, on it's as an audio book. I would think that would be desirable to people these days, or you can get read e-book. by whom? Do we know? Uh, you know, I didn't check. Um, wait, I have it right here. Not W. P. Kinsella, I assume. If it is, I'll buy it right away. A Grover Gardener. Don't know who that is. I I have a first. What turns out to be a first edition of the book, and it appears to be signed by Kinsella as well i've got it online somewhere um but uh yeah it's it's really a great book and in times like this i think it people would really um really enjoy it and again it's available on you know apple books uh, as a ebook or an audiobook uh next up martin scorsese's the last waltz Okay, so the last waltz, uh, I cut and paste this basically from, because I was running up against the time-wise from uh, Wikipedia, but Doug's going to handle this section mostly. Um, uh, The last waltz was a concert by the Canadian-American rock group The Band, held on Thanksgiving Day of 1976 at the Winterland Ballroom in San Francisco. It was advertised as their farewell appearance, and they were joined by a cavalcade of sort of 1960s and 70s uh, stars, Ronnie Hawkins, Bob Dylan, um, Eric Clapton, Neil Diamond, Dr. John, Joni Mitchell, Van Morrison, Ringo Starr, Muddy Waters, Ronnie Woods, Neil Young. Uh, And it was turned into a documentary, which is what we watched uh, for today's podcast, uh, directed by a young Martin Scorsese that was released uh, in 1978. So I guess tell us um, tell us why we I watched it um, with Andrea, who really enjoyed it a lot because she's a musical person. Um, I I liked it more than I thought I would. I didn't know a lot about the band. I mean, I know some of their songs. 
you know, yeah. down on Cripple Creek and stuff like that. Um, but I really, I, I hadn't, I didn't have real high hopes for it, but I liked it a lot more than I, I thought I would. So tell me why this was your choice. This well, week. I think what you probably responded to, uh, in a number of levels, probably Andrea really responded to the caliber of the musicians mm-hmm. that you were seeing on screen. Yes. I mean, they were an incredibly talented group of people, right. uh, these guys who had been basically a bar band, a, a working band out of Canada backing up this Canadian uh, singer, Ronnie Hawkins. And then they struck out on their own. They hooked up with a lot of people. And then mainly Bob Dylan came into their circle. Mm-hmm. And they started writing their own songs, famously up in Woodstock, where they and Dylan were living. And they, at the late 60s, all of a sudden, they produced this amazing music which sort of heralded uh, a, a new, you know, a new roots coming rock. of music. Well, yeah. roots rock, what we yeah. became country rock, Americana. They basically, they had these story songs populated by very unusual people, and it didn't sound like anybody else, and the musicianship was just great. And what the movie makes clear, because Scorsese interviews these guys, uh, inter cut with concert footage is that you know these are interesting funny witty guys mm-hmm. and you know you you want to spend a couple of hours listening to them tell their stories so right. you, you you just got this great great band i use the word band the yeah. way they use it because um, they couldn't really come up with a name for themselves in right. the 60s. They had various names that just didn't work, and they were always referred to as, you know, uh, Dylan's band, you know, the, the right. band. Are they going to be? And so they just adopted that um, sort of in reaction to what other band names were in the 60s, which was one of my favorite parts of the movie, when one of them, Richard Manuel, describes how they got their name. Yeah. Um, and... Um, this this great farewell concert, although right. technically it wasn't supposed to be what it really became because they were only supposed to stop touring. Like right. the Beatles in 1969 and 70, they weren't really breaking up. They just didn't want to go on the road anymore. Right. They were still supposed to work and produce albums. Unfortunately, uh, life intervened, uh, problems between the guys kind of ensued and the original lineup never appeared again except what you see in this concert so Um, robbie robertson who was the main songwriter mm -hmm. um never appeared with them again except at the rock and roll hall of fame induction a couple of other times so uh i mean i guess for me the film part of it i mean there's very it's too it's easy to be overwhelmed by the star power especially if you're not prepared for it. And yeah, I didn't really know much about the movie. Um, the, the, the list of people, you know, like I said, Bob Dylan, Joni Mitchell, Van Morrison, Ringo Starr, Muddy, Muddy Waters. I mean, Muddy I didn't... Waters, yeah, Neil Muddy Tom Waters, to me, is like, he's not a real person somehow. Like, you, you, right. know, you would and not really see him on there. stage, yet he was there. Yeah. Neil Young, um, people like that. And the film part of it, I, you know, maybe it was just, maybe if I watched it again, I would feel differently because I, 
I was again overwhelmed by the star power of the musicians and the music, but it it didn't feel like much to me somehow. Well, remember they were operating. This was a real live concert right. that took place over hours, and Scorsese had to work under those conditions. Right. You know, they they had very little time to prepare. This all came together very fast, basically within a month to six weeks, right. when it, from conception to the night of the concert on Thanksgiving Day in 76. Oh, wow. Okay. So, so Scorsese, this wasn't, he was just going to film it, and talking to the guys, and particularly Robbie Robertson, he all of a sudden got filled with ideas on how to really make this more cinematic, you know, the, the design of the show, the set, the lighting became more complicated. He basically had all the song lyrics printed out and he had on each line light cues, camera positions, you know, who, you know, camera three on Rick Danko, Levon Helm, camera five, stick with him. I mean, he really started laying, it became hmm. far more involved than they ever thought. It wasn't just, let's just stick a camera, film the concert and go home. Right. It, it became a far bigger deal to Scorsese, who was in the middle, by the way, of working on the movie New York, New York at the time. Okay. So, you know, th this was just came to him kind of at the last minute, and he fell in love with it, and he had to do this while doing New York, New York, and then starting the planning of Raging Bull, which <laughs> was his next movie after that. Yeah. That's why the movie came out a year and a half later in 78. Mm-hmm. So Scorsese is, um, I mentioned last week that I was just going to watch, uh, this is Spinal Tap, uh, which is inspired in part by The Last Waltz as a, um, a sort of, uh, the, the Scorsese is in the movie per se. He's, you know, you see him on camera. This, he's this tiny little guy sort of following these tiny little kind of nerdy guy following these. And he's the interviewer. Musicians. Yeah. And he's doing the interviews. So sort of like Marty DeBerge and uh, Rob Reiner's character and uh, This is Spinal Tap. Probably Marty was not no coincidence. Yeah. Reiner. Yeah. yeah. Um, where were you at this time? Were you a big fan of the band? Or I, 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 I was a big fan, but in truth, I was probably more a fan of Scorsese at the time. When, that, when the movie came out in 78, I had seen all his work. I loved it. So I was really looking forward to this. So the band's music, although I loved it, was maybe a little secondary mm -hmm. to that. Um, where I was, though, well, the night of the concert was Thanksgiving. So I was spending Thanksgiving at uh, my parents' house out at Long Island. I was yeah. uh, home from uh, college at the time. Right. And so, uh, um, you mentioned that the musicianship, these guys, yeah. so that the two best known people in the band are Levon Helm, uh, who was the drummer, uh, and Robbie Robertson, who was the lead guitarist and the songwriter. Uh, yeah. And there's a couple other guys who I am not. Well, Rick, Rick Danko. Rick is the Danko. Player, yeah. Richard Manuel, the uh, piano player, and Garth Hudson, the uh, organ synthesizer genius. Yeah, they all play sort of. In in every scene that they've got a different instrument in their hand, you know they they they're incredibly versatile. They yeah. can they can like for instance, Levon Helm, who was considered one of the most influential drummers in rock and roll, frequently would go to man 
play mandolin and Richard Manuel would, would go play the drums. drums. Yeah, or and somebody would play Rick, it. Rick Danko all of a sudden would grab a fiddle and would just play a violin in a manner no one else has ever played it in the crook of his elbow. It's fascinating. Yeah. But and, yeah. Um, the, what, the wonderful thing about them, that they were always in the, now Levon Helm, to me, was my favorite singer in the group, but they had three lead singers. The mm-hmm. way Robbie Robertson figured it out, depending on the song he wrote, who was best suited. So Helm, Rick Danko, and Richard Manuel all sang a lot of lead. Okay. Um, in, the, in the movie, it's mainly uh, Helm and Danko. Richard Manuel, unfortunately, wasn't in the best shape at the time of the concert. He was uh, yeah. he, fighting drug addiction and drinking. I, and yeah, I would it, say... Mentally, he was a little... But he is... He, in the early years of the band, he had done maybe even more lead singing than the other two. Yeah. Uh, there's a, many of the interviews you say to yourself, this person is stoned out of their tree right now. You know, there, there was a lot, obviously a lot of drug use going on. Well, and it, it was, it was in the after in the postscript is that unfortunately 10 years later, he committed suicide in Florida yeah. after a concert. Yeah. So, you know, Richard Manuel is a very troubled guy. Right. Um, but funny, I love him in the movie. I think his, his his observations to me are almost my favorite parts of the movie. Uh, so the aftermath, we uh, we mentioned the band, uh, although the, you said they weren't really supposed to break up per se, just stop touring. And and he does well. They, well, they they did, but then they came back together minus Robbie Robertson. Okay. Uh, the, Robbie Robertson was the songwriter of the group, right. and. Levon Helm disputed that in the years to come. He thought it was a far more they would sit up in Woodstock and that the song sort of emerged as a group. But right. in practice, Robertson was the songwriter and he by far made the most money. He he became a very successful uh, Hollywood like film scoring guy. He worked a lot with Scorsese in the years ahead and he made far more money than the others. The others in the early 80s had to get back on the road to, to make money to live. They, they had to earn their, their, their daily bread. So they reconstituted the band, the other four, and they added some other like Woodstock musicians. As a matter of fact, I saw them a bunch of times in the 80s and early 90s in New York mm-hmm. with that group. Were they um, any good? No, they, they were great. I mean, because yeah. you were hearing, first of all, vocally, you heard the guys, you know, you heard Lee yeah. Von Helm singing. Right. You heard Danko singing. So it, it was tremendous. And they sounded great. Garth Hudson. So, but it wasn't, it, it, you just knew it wasn't quite the same. And they were right. playing in much smaller venues. I mean, whereas they were playing, you know, uh, in front of, you know, 600,000 people at Watkins Glen in 1973 or big stadiums. By the time I saw them, they were playing clubs, much smaller venues here in the city. Robertson, um, as Doug mentioned, went on and had a career in film. He acted a little bit, but a little bit, uh, but um, but mostly was a music you know, scored films. And the, I mean, the Most list of Scorsese's movies involved him: yeah. Raging Bull, the, uh, the King of Comedy, The Color of Money, Casino, uh, Any Given Sunday, Gangs of New York. The Departed, Shutter Island, The Wolf of Wall Street, the and the Irishman were all he worked on the yeah. music on all yeah. those movies. Yeah, he's done he's done very well for himself. He 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 managed to 
you know, keep saner than most. The others yeah. tended to have drug problems, health problems, but Robertson has survived. As a matter of fact, just the other day, there's a new documentary out called Once We're Brothers mm-hmm. that Robbie Robertson put out about the, the Scorsese, Ron Howard, I think are producers of it. It's supposed to be very good. Sort mm-hmm. of about his take on the band in addition to Last Waltz. And he's very, as you can tell, he's, he's featured more than the others in this movie. He was a producer yes. of the movie yes. and he's much more a talking head in this yes. than the, than the others, which Levon Helm really resented. Apparently. Yeah. I didn't get the sense Levon Helm. He seemed at least he seemed like not a guy who wanted to talk that much. No, no, no. He was, he was pissed and I okay. think it comes through yeah. and he was pissed in the years to come. And, uh, but you know, he, he he later he he went back to Woodstock. By the by the time this movie was made, they were based in uh, Los Angeles, mm-hmm. but they all kind of went back to Woodstock. And famously, Levon Helm, for years at his barn on weekends, had what he would call the Midnight Ramble, which is a prominent part of the movie. He describes mm-hmm. the original Midnight Rambles down south that right. he grew up with. And he would invite famous people and people, you know, we came up from the city to, you know, in his barn to watch him and his daughter, Amy, and other musicians just put on shows on the weekends. Uh, it is Midnight Rambles. Wow. And sadly, he died of uh, throat cancer about uh, seven, eight years ago. Yeah. Uh, and Rick, Rick Danko also, he died of a heart attack about 20 years ago. Can you recommend? So only two of them left. Can you recommend to people any other co- like of this type genre of film that would be a good choice? If well, there, if there are a lot it? of there are a lot of great concert films. My other favorite is uh, Jonathan Demme's "Stop Making Sense," a wonderful concert film featuring the uh, Talking Heads mm-hmm. from 1983. It's uh, I love their music. It's an incredibly inventive shoot. Also, like this a single concert but there's no backstage it's just the concert just the performance oh, okay and i think it's just a brilliant example and it's the other great rock and roll concert film i think john so stop making sense talking heads directed by Jonathan, Jonathan demi directed check yeah. it out uh the last waltz is available if you have an amazon prime membership is available for free on amazon prime uh, next episode, what are we doing? Uh, we are. I have chosen uh, the Cinque Terre episode of the PBS travel show Rick Steves Europe. Doug doesn't even know who Rick Steves is, but we're going to introduce him to Rick Steves. And Doug will watch and talk about Game 7 of the 1960 World Series between the Pittsburgh Pirates and the New York Yankees. I'll talk to you later. Yes, sir. <laughs>